0: Good evening. Welcome to the City Club of the Mahoning Valley. I'm Lori Weeby, the Administrative and Operations Officer at the Raymond John Wayne Foundation. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Crispin Memorial Hall at Stanbaugh Auditorium. Tonight's forum will be a presentation and a conversation about closing the wage gap and building economic opportunity in the valley. For decades, the United States was considered the land of opportunity, a place where hard work resulted in educational opportunities, jobs that paid livable wages and offered opportunities for advancement, including affordable health care. Today, that vision is doubted by many and reachable by a vanishing few. Rapid technological advancement, shifting economic infrastructure, and wage stagnation, coupled with the structural racism that has hindered opportunities for minority populations has led to a considerable wealth and opportunity gap. These changes are felt across the country, but they are especially tangible in the Mahoning Valley. The loss of manufacturing jobs, discrimination in the labor market, an aging population, and the so-called brain drain to other states and other parts of Ohio have combined to create serious concern about the region's economic future. Recently, the Ohio Department of Jobs and Family Services placed Trumbull and Mahoning among the ten Ohio counties with the highest unemployment rates, despite having 12 to 14,000 open jobs in the tri-county area at one time. So how is our region's leadership adjusting to the new economy? How do the jobs of today differ from those of the past? And what strategies are being implemented to not only bring these jobs to the valley, but to prepare our workforce to take them? And most importantly, how do we ensure the American dream is accessible to future generations of Mahoning Valley residents? This forum this evening will deviate a bit from the traditional City Club forum. For the first 20 minutes, we'll hear from Maureen Conway, Vice President for Policy Programs and Executive Director of Economic Opportunities Program at the Aspen Institute. She'll tell us about her research which explores raise the floor and build ladder strategies that improve the quality of low wage jobs and promote mobility for low wage workers. Ms. Conway will join the other panelists for a moderated conversation. And finally, we'll conclude with a traditional City Club question and answer period. Joining Maureen on the stage is Dennis Robinson, Sr., Mission Services Director with Youngstown Area Goodwills, Incorporated. And T. Sharon Woodbury, Director of Community Planning and Economic Development with the City of Youngstown. Guiding tonight's conversation is publisher of the business journal, Andrea Wood. Mrs. Wood was born and raised in Pittsburgh and received a BA in political science from Penn State University. She began her journalism career in 1974 at WYTV channel 33 in Youngstown where she was the station's first female newswoman and anchor. She moved on to WSPT TV in South Bend, Indiana, where she was an anchor and reporter, and to WPGH TV in Pittsburgh, where she anchored the news and produced Good Day Pittsburgh. In 1979, she returned to WYTV as an investigative reporter and later became the chief anchor and executive producer. In 1984, she left television and co-founded the Business Journal. She is president of the Youngstown Publishing Company and publisher of the Business Journal, which given the recent demise of our vindicator has become increasingly important. Mrs. Wood, I now turn the forum over to you.
1: Thank you very much. Well, tonight, we are at Stanbaugh Auditorium in the Crisman Memorial Hall, and we're going to be listening to Closing the Gap Building Opportunity in the Valley of Forum. You've met the panelists, so now I would like to introduce Ms. Maureen Conway, Vice President for Policy Programs and Executive Director of Economic Opportunities Program, the Aspen Institute. Ms. Conway.
2: Um, so the Aspen Institute was founded in 1949 in Aspen Colorado it uh, was founded really to um, as a nonpartisan non ideological forum to bring together diverse leaders to um, step back from daily life and to think about um, sort of the the critical issues of our time and also to um, to really think about sort of the values that are that are guiding societal decisions and how do we understand that and think about um, uh, those values and how we can start to drive towards creating uh, change towards a, a, a stable, prosperous society. So the mission of the Aspen Institute is really to, to continue that nonpartisan forum, but for the purpose of advancing a free, just, and equitable society. Um, and so it's been a good place for me for the past two decades to, to work on issues of exploring economic opportunity, and I just want to take a couple moments to tell you a little bit about the economic opportunities program so you have some understanding of of where my remarks come from this evening. Um, Our goal at the economic opportunities program is to advance strategies, policies, ideas to help low and moderate income Americans uh, connect to and thrive in today's changing economy. Importantly, we recognize, and I think it's always important to be mindful of, uh, the, the role that race, gender, and place play and how they intersect with and intensify the challenge of eco- economic inequality. And we strive to lift that up and really think about the role they play so we can work more towards a more inclusive reality of economic opportunity in America. Uh, when we think about a focus on economic opportunity, what does that really mean? So we basically investigate the two ways people access economic opportunity. How do they connect to work and have employment that can support themselves? And how can they start businesses and use that as an economic opportunity strategy? Um, and the means by which we do our work is, is basically in, in three ways. We do a range of on-the-ground research. So I, I do research, and I'll try not to use too many wonky research terms, but. We do a wide variety of of on-the-ground research to understand what's happening in local communities, what are the strategies uh, that they're using to help people to connect to opportunity, what are the particular issues that they're dealing and how how are they different or similar place to place. Um, We also do a variety of leadership and fellowship programs that advance innovators who are expanding economic opportunity and we support them as they build their important work and also learn from them and sort of lift them up as exemplars that others can learn from. And finally we uh, do a variety of of public and private dialogue and convening to try to bring divergent perspectives together as well as to communicate around promising ideas and reach a broad range of audiences with them. So that's a quick snapshot of of what we do. Um, So the topic that was sort of laid out this evening is building opportunity and and closing the wage gap. And and I just sort of thought I would start by sort of framing why this is such an important uh, and timely topic. So first, I'm sure you're aware that there's a lot of conversation these days about the future of work, about technology, automation, artificial intelligence, robots, Uh, and what this all might mean for jobs in the future, will there be jobs, Uh, what skills will people need to succeed in work, Um, what does the changing technological landscape mean for our own work and for our own working lives, as well as how do we think about what it might mean for our children, our families, and for our society overall, because work is an important institution in our society. But at the same time, there's this conversation about the future of work there 's incredible anxiety about what i 'll call the now of work. Um, uh, roughly one in four working adults right now in the United States works at, in a job that pays a wage that even if they work full time year round it 's insufficient to lift a small family above the poverty line and Even more working people are struggling with the cost of the basics of housing of health care, childcare, transportation and the ever escalating cost of higher education that is so frequently cited as essential for success in today's economy. Roughly 40% of American households can't come up with $400 in case of an emergency expense. So there's a wide degree of economic precarity. And it's also important to remember that these economic challenges are not evenly distributed. Low wage workers are far more likely to be women and people of color, The gender pay gap has narrowed, but women still only earn, according to Pew research, about 85% of what men earn for comparable work. We know that black unemployment in most communities is roughly twice that of white unemployment, um, and that holds true even when accounting for education level. Uh, And the typical black family has just 10% of the wealth of the typical white family. So we know that there's been a range of historical reasons for this, and there's been a range of, um, uh, from redlining to employment discrimination, and really back to sort of uh, the uh, issues in the founding of this country that have really created many of these disparities. But they live with us today, and it's important to be attentive to them. Uh, And it goes without saying that there are also differences across place. And here, um, uh, it certainly goes without Uh, saying that some of the changes we've seen in our economy, such as the change from uh, a manufacturing and production-based economy to a service-based economy, have had disparate impacts on different communities. Uh, In general, across communities, we see that the quantity and quality of economic opportunity can vary quite widely by place. So these issues of race, gender, and place, again, are important to be attentive to. Um, I don't know how many people are familiar with opportunity zones. Yeah, so this is something that we've been looking a lot at. Um, And I think if you think about what are those designated opportunity zones, so opportunity zones are are basically the geographic areas that states designated to be eligible for opportunity fund investments, which were incentivized through the 2017 Tax Act. Um, And if you look at sort of the map of the opportunity zones, it reveals a variety of rural, urban, and suburban communities that have disproportionately high... Uh, poverty and unemployment rates, lower levels of education attainment, and just generally less access to economic opportunity. It's really a map of the unequal access to opportunity across America. Many people sense that today's challenge of accessing economic opportunity is different than for earlier educations, and current research really kind of demonstrates that's probably right. Uh, Raj Chetty has done work on economic mobility and what he finds is that the chances of a child doing better than his or her parents uh, in the post war era was roughly 90%. But by the time we had, but for children who were born in the 1980s, that, that, those chances dropped to being even, just 50%. And the indicators would be that those chances have continued to decline because research also shows that the millennial generation, despite being better educated than previous generations, has lower earnings and less wealth than previous generations did at their age. And much of this this economic anxiety does, you know, sort of come back to the changing nature of work. Nearly 80% of the income going to the household sector is wage and salary earnings from work. Um, The next largest source going to the household sector is retirement earnings. So really the earnings from work are what people rely on to pay their bills every month. Uh, And in addition, many people rely on work for other kinds of things such as health insurance and retirement savings and other other important stabilizers in their economic lives. So the situation of work today is significant contributor to economic anxiety um, and, and I think that the talk about the future of work is really kind of compounding a lot of that anxiety. So if we think about the future of work, you have some charts on your table, and I think that they were also posted on, online. Um, and I just have been looking at this putting together because I think when we want to think about how do we, how do we close the gap, we should sort of also think about what that gap really is. Um, And I've been making these charts in different ways around different communities across the country. We sort of look at, um, we use BLS data on sort of what occupations are are paying and and we use a MIT living wage line to think about how many occupations are paying enough for uh, certain kinds of family structures. So here I primarily used what's the living wage for one adult with one child And if you take sort of the median of the major occupational groups, if you take the median wage, you know how many of those occupational groups would be above this living wage line and how many would be below? And so the green boxes are the boxes that pay more than this, so this would be sort of what you could think of as a family supporting wage job. And the blue boxes are below. And you can see, I've done this in several ways. So first is to say, if you look at the the projection. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics does projections and shares this data with states um, on uh, sort of what are the jobs right now. Uh, and they did this in for 2016 and then projected to 2026. So those were the most recent projections. Um, so, so the first one is, what does the current labor market look like, and how many of the jobs in the current labor market are above this, this wage level? And then the next one looks at well, what are the new jobs look like? So, of the of the jobs that are going to be created over the next 10 years, how many of those are above? And you can see that's that's better, right? There's more of them, but it's still only about uh, it's still less than 40% that are above that wage level. But then you know it's still sort of you still have a roughly similar situation 10 years out because there's just you know not that many of those those new jobs. Um, now, that doesn't look very good, and you might feel like, oh, what's, you know, this is con- like that your community is struggling, but if you look at the ones for the U.S., you can see the whole country is really struggling with this because the picture really isn't that different. So it's not just Youngstown, and, it, and I have a couple of other uh, slides, I think, there that show a couple of other communities because I've been doing this in many places. It's not just Youngstown. It's not just... San Diego, it's not just South Carolina, it's, it's really something that people are struggling with all across the country, is, is in this changed nature of work as we've moved from a production economy that had stable, regular jobs with benefits to a more service economy that has lower wage jobs, the w- the, we've sort of hollowed out those family wage jobs and now we need to think about if we want people to work, um, how do we start to change this picture? And and that's kind of the point that I wanted to get to with these charts is in this conversation about the future of work is that we can change this picture. If we don't like the fact that working people can't support themselves on their earnings, we can change that, that work is a human endeavor. It's done in the context of human society. It's shaped by the laws that we choose, the decisions we make, the actions we choose to take, and the values we hold, right? A lot of times our conversation about work acts as if it's sort of you know, determined by technology or some other force, but really people can decide. Um, and the other point I wanna quickly make before I, I move on to sort of what are some of the ideas about how do we start to think about making change um, is that I've been going through a lot of data that's, that's sort of bloodless. Um, it's data that's mostly about earnings and, and, and that's really not the only factor that makes a quality job. And so I just wanna have you think for a minute about the best job you've ever had and think about the worst job you've ever had. And if you think about what made it best or worst, it might have been, it probably wasn't the size of your paycheck. Might have been the people you worked with or how interesting and engaging you found the work or how meaningful you found the work or other things. And I just raise this point because as we think about how do we build better jobs and better work lives, which honestly, build better lives for people, then we want to think about these other dimensions. OK, so if we want to improve the quality of work, uh, what do we do? And I'm going to share, go very quickly through some ideas and different buckets of, of work about um, some of the things <coughs> we've been looking at. Because we've been looking at a variety of strategies that sort of aim towards this in our, in our work really since the recession. And we were looking at people going back to work, but, but sort of really not getting ahead. So, um, I have these in kind of buckets of, of workforce development. And so, in workforce development, we see a variety of ways in which people are really uh, looking at where there are good opportunities in design and designing training and helping people build skills and build connections and find support so that they have time and space to learn. Um, but they're also really engaging companies around things like job design, and, and as people build skills, how can you redesign jobs so that you're hanging on to people longer, so that people can contribute more, and so that your, your, your company and your workers can succeed together. And I think um, JBS Boston has some really interesting work that they've been doing in this employer engagement met- matrix and thinking about how to move um, both companies and workers along in a continuum of skills progression and, and quality job progression. Um, Another example is is work-life partnership, and um, we might talk about that one a a little bit more later. Um, Another strategy is in business investment. And so here we've worked with a number of organizations such as HCAP Partners in San Diego, um, Northern Initiatives, which is based in the northern peninsula of Michigan, Coastal Enterprises in Maine, and these organizations sort of share a way of investing in, in companies that advise them on their human capital practices while they're also helping the company grow and succeed. Um, another way that people do um, have done business advising is through creating tools and resources for small businesses um, and Pacific community ventures in San Francisco. Uh, begins with businesses really really where they are and helps organizations like Jen Musty who runs Batter Bakery think about all of the complexities of, of managing her workforce as she's managing her business um, and build sort of steady improvements that has helped her both improve her profits and improve her revenues as well as retain her workers longer and have them be happier in their jobs. And having happier workers has made her job easier too. Um, The other other issue that um, there's a couple of other strategies that I could think about in terms of employee ownership and sort of some of the ways of worker voice and engagement that we've also been looking at organizations that do that. Um, The last thing I want to mention is that there's this range of innovation that's happening to improve work and the quality of economic opportunity. uh, But to sustain work and and assess progress, we need new metrics. As the saying goes, what gets measured gets managed. Uh, And there's a lot of innovation that's happening on that front uh, with Just Capital, B-Lab, and with a company that uh, we partnered with to launch with a software that's called Working Metrics and that really looks at and benchmarks companies on job quality metrics. So we're excited about the potential of these metrics to inform business investing and procurement decisions and encouraging practices that support both job quality and strong businesses. In the work I've done over the past 20 years, I've had the opportunity to talk to many people about their work lives and hopes. I've interviewed folks and done focus groups with women leaving welfare, displaced manufacturers, former coal miners, formerly incarcerated, opportunity youth, and others. And I think of their stories when I think about um, what a good job meant for them and their families. Um, and I remember one African man in particular that I met in Hartford um, who was you know, really um, was in a job training program, really, you know, has been succeeding, and yet was really kind of um, struggling personally. And he was in this focus group. He wasn't really saying much, and I was trying to engage him about why he came to this program. And he sort of stopped and started and stopped and started in his answer, and he wasn't really looking at me. But then he finally looked at me and he said, I just want a chance. And that's really what he wanted. And I think that we have an opportunity through public sector, private sector, civic and social solutions working together to really give that young man and the millions of young men like him and young women to get their chance to work and to work for their American dream. Thank you.
3: I just wanted to give Maureen um, first, thank you, that was awesome, Um, give her a chance to get get set up before we go into our moderated conversation um, by Andrea Wood with the rest of the panel. And then after that, we'll have question and answers from you. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Maureen. That was very insightful. And I think we all have a lot of questions and a lot of observations that we'd like to make. I noticed from your biography that you have studied workforce development and sector partnerships. And I noticed that you found some promising practices and key operating features of programs in specific industry sectors. Could you elaborate on what are some of the key characteristics that we might apply locally?
2: So there's several things that they're able to do. Um, First is to build a network of 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 company context in that sector, right? So that's critically important because if you're training people, if you're trying to train people to help them get a job, you need to have connections into that industry and to help people figure out how do you navigate that industry, right? Different industries have different cultures and different norms, as well as different skill sets that they need. They have different hiring practices. And so having a deep understanding of the dynamics that influence an industry, and being able to bring that into preparing people to enter into that industry, we've seen that that be a critical uh, piece of success. The other thing that they do is not only understand the industry, but understand the workers that they're working with, right? And what's going on in their lives? so that, they, that uh has been a barrier for them to access work and to be able to succeed at work and how do they think about addressing those barriers so that, so that people, particularly low-income people, right, have some time and space in their lives so that they can actually participate in learning, so that they can stay in a program of education and finish it and then succeed in work. So being able to kind of bring together a high-quality skill building uh, program together with an understanding of the industry and the industry culture and networks, as well as having the sort of social supports to give people time and space in their lives, we've seen those three be, being the key features that programs really need to, to focus on to be able to help people succeed. And this,
1: um, please tell us your perspective on what
4: you've heard tonight. Well, I, I would uh, definitely agree with uh, what Maureen is saying, um, but it, it's, it's got to go a little bit deeper than, than those uh, partnerships because, uh, as, as you stated, you know, life life kind of goes on for these individuals. Uh, so there has to be a level of, of connection with uh, social services uh, and some other uh, community-based uh, programs. Um, you know, the, the, we, we, we basically have to uh, walk people through the process now. We can't just uh, create these plans and create these uh, opportunities, and just say, "Go and get it." We have to walk them through it. Uh, so there has to be some hand uh, holding and uh, we have to be willing as sector part sector partners uh, to be do to do that.
1: Sharon, from the city economic development perspective. Um, so I um,
3: am um, familiar with um, both sides. On the employer side, with some of the struggles and demands that there are with um, employers. Uh, needing to have uh, a workforce to meet the skill set that's required, um, but also those that are seeking uh, jobs in those professions. It really is a marriage of the two. And I find in my position that there are so many different organizations and agencies that provide some component of what's needed. And I think where you um, can, can gain some traction is when uh, you're, you're helping connect those and making it easier for the job seeker and also for the employer. Employers are, they have a, a, an, a company to run. And so um, they're looking for the, the right skill set, but I think the, the public sector can step in in terms of trying to provide programming so that it's easier for them to find those individuals by providing some of the services that both marine and Dennis were talking about. Is
1: that happening locally?
3: So it is happening locally, um, it just needs to happen on a much larger scale than what it is. There are some some great models that have been um, uh, in practice, um, but it requires some funding, it requires some additional um, um, agencies and, and employers to buy into it because it's a new way of thinking, I believe, in terms of um, how the traditional way of hiring an employee is. And so it's um, a change in mindset in how we're going to approach the new challenges with workforce.
1: So Maureen, how can businesses become engaged in this? They're trying to run a business.
2: Yeah, well, I think that there's um, a variety of ways that businesses can become engaged. So, um, uh, so they're trying to run a business, but the business relies on you know sort of the people in the business, right, and them being able to successfully do their jobs. So I think uh, one thing is for, for companies to think about who are the organizations that they can work with um, that can help them both find, retain, and support the, the, the workers that they, that they have. Um, I think the other thing that we've seen more organizations partner with businesses on is um, th- things like job design and um, looking at sort of what are there things within your business that are sort of preventing people from succeeding in your workplace and how do we understand them you know many people don't want to tell their boss sort of what the problem is right and often these organizations can be a helpful sort of intermediary around that conversation where they can sort of see the way maybe scheduling happens or other kinds of issues happen that are keeping people from um, succeeding in in the workplace. so that's um, so that's an important piece and then you know, the, the other thing we've seen organizations do is, is also around supervisor training, right? So do you have people who are supervising people who just come from different backgrounds? And, you know, are they able to communicate well? And, and how, how do we sort of um, um, help people communicate better at work so more people are going to succeed at work? So these are just a, a few examples. I guess the, the last thing I would say when I was talking about training, one of the things that's also really just a good training practice is to have applied learning, right? And some training programs um, develop sort of a, you know, a mock workplace in their, in their training, but to the degree you build partnerships and you can sort of have people come in to work as they're completing training and things like that, that's a, that's a really powerful way people can learn. People do a lot of learning at work and sort of recognizing that and being intentional about that is another way for companies to be involved.
1: I'm thinking about the single mother or or the single father that's working two or three jobs. How do we reach out to those people? They don't have any time to get more training. What does
2: a business do? Yeah. So those people do not have time to get more training, and that's and that's really true. And I think, um, you know, that's I think where um, those are those are really challenging areas that you really want to think about. Um, what is the role of the business in terms of supporting the, that particular worker, and how do we think about also, I mean, uh, you, Dennis, you brought up the issue of social support and yes. things like that, right? And so so to what degree does do we need sort of more accessible social supports for things like childcare and transportation and so that, that ease some of the stress, the financial stress so many families are facing so that they can manage their work lives better, right? Um, That can be a strategy as well as sort of, as as well as engaging a company around skills. But it's, you know, I think there's, um, sometimes we focus too quickly on skills and we forget some of these other life situation issues that are just, you know, skills won't solve, that I don't have access to affordable daycare, right? So I think that we have to think about a more whole person approach and then think, is the business the the right place to solve that? Or should that be solved in some other realm?
1: Do you have success stories that you can tell us about, perhaps, probably in larger markets? And do you have a success story in a market this size?
2: Um, let's see. So, right. So some of the some of the – because you're right, some of the organizations I was mentioning, like – um, JBS in Boston, or there's another organization in Boston that was working in a, in a hotel that was really sort of this applied training support and helping people um, get into higher wage jobs. Um, uh, I don't know about about this this size, but I think you know I, I kind of want to talk about one. It's Chicago, so it's not you know, um, but the the manufacturing extension program in Chicago. Um, was working with sort of small to medium sized, um, manufacturers. And they typically had done sort of quick consulting things. But they, they really were, were trying to think about how do we do a more long term strategy with the companies to build for long term success that, that thinks about the workforce, right? And the role that the workforce plays in the company's success. So they built this model that was a more integrative approach in how they worked with the company. So it wasn't just about how do I solve your near-term, you know, supply or or delivery time problem, but how do we think about your your business operations as a whole and the role your people play in that. And so they worked with the companies on not only sort of how do we rebalance the line, but also job design, skill development, um, and importantly, did things like you know, employee engagement surveys and other kinds of things to really hear from the workers what's going on at work and what would make work better for you and what would, what would sort of keep you in the job and help you contribute more. And what we saw, we've been doing research on this model, uh, and what we saw is, is, is that over time those companies were able to raise wages to improve benefits and also were able to grow their businesses and, and be more stable and profitable too. So it really was a, a good way to think about if you're going to build the success of the company, how do you build it with your workforce? Um, so I don't know if that's, that's a good example for you or what you were looking for.
1: Dennis, give me some observations from what you're hearing and what you see in your position.
4: Well, in, in my position, um, you, know, you, you asked about uh, a, a model or a success story, and I have one, if I can share it um we we are uh, currently working with uh with several sector partners uh Nordson uh stepped up to the plate and, and they had a need uh, and uh, allowed uh, these these partners the wean Foundation uh aspire Eastern Gateway Community College uh goodwill mycap we all g- were able to come together and kind of look at the need of this particular manufacturer. And by looking and getting together, we were able to kind of piece together what things those individuals needed uh, to be successful so that they could be given those tools and then present it to that, to that uh, employer. And uh, uh, needless to say, we're, we're now in our second cohort. Uh, it's going very well. And, uh, and I think it is, it's a model that is going to, to be very very successful in this area uh, if we can just get uh, the rest of uh, the, the city to kind of catch on to it.
1: How did this come about? I mean, what was the impetus?
4: Well, it all came about, again, because of the need. Uh, because so
1: they reached out to you? They,
4: they reached out and, uh, and, and they uh, mobilized the partners that they felt would be beneficial in getting all of those things done. The
1: business did. Yes.
4: So now, when when we're talking about social services, we're talking about uh, uh, job coaching. We're talking about um, more education. Uh, we're talking about technical skill. All of those all of those components have been brought to the table uh, to make uh, it, it easier for those individuals to be to be presented uh, for these jobs. And it's and it's been uh, very successful so far. Sharon?
3: Um, I'm uh, somewhat familiar with the the program um, um, that um, is just being discussed, and I think it addresses a number of things. One of the questions you asked was, what about that mother who's working two jobs, and and how does she have uh, the ability to um, advance? And I think the beauty of that program is that they are being, um, they're working and they're receiving wages while they're um, receiving the same skill sets that are needed um, that we're discussing. And that it's um, designed for advancement so it's not just coming in on an entry level. Uh, they're, they're trying to structure in kind of that um, job design that you were talking about to where there are some um, opportunities to move up within the company. So uh, when I mentioned that there are, you know, some good examples, it just uh, it has to be amplified in order to meet the, the needs that we have. But certainly that's a, a great model.
1: Maureen?
2: One more example, please. I was thinking, you know, another, another example um, is uh, an organization, The Source, in Grand Rapids, um, and it's part of an affiliate network, uh, Work Lab Innovations. And these organizations uh, all do sort of a similar thing in different ways in their different communities. But what The Source did is um, basically work with a set of manufacturers in their community. Uh, to look at sort of what is the problem they were having with employee turnover, um, and so, and what they did was they looked at the situation in the in the people's lives and work, and they brought a lot of the social services and things, work supports that people need to work. It was almost like an employee assistance program for lower wage workers, right? Um, but the important thing, and it kind of also is for the, the working mother who's working two jobs and doesn't have time, is it, it brings it to them where they are, they're at work, right? So so it doesn't make it so hard for them to sort of access the kind of help that they need. Um, the other thing that it does is is um the, the way the source works is is the companies actually pay for this, right? And it's and it's a way uh they see so by because they're invested in it they see that it helps reduce their, their turnover, it helps uh, their companies improve, right? And by them being able to hang on to workers a little bit longer, right, that reduces their sort of recruitment, training costs, other kinds of things, right? So those costs that are often hidden for a business but are really expensive, by stabilizing their workforce, those, those costs go down. So the companies see a return on investment by 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 investing in this service, the workers will have their lives more stable and are able to stay in the jobs that they have longer. And, you know, eventually they can sort of try to to move forward. But I think the thing we really need to think about for these, you know, working people who are working two or three jobs and they lose this job because they... Can't hang on to it, and then they go to the next job. Right? They really need some stability in their lives before they can try to move towards mobility. And I think that this program really does an important job in sort of bringing that to them. Um, and they do affiliate. I think they affili- um, have an affiliate now, and with towards employment um, to, to implement this model in Cleveland. So, so they're really to, in Cleveland. So they're really trying to spread across the country and work with other organizations and how they can think about. Um, Organizing this so that so that people access the services that are in their community in ways that work for them, because as you, I'm sure, know, a lot of people who would qualify for services or could benefit from them, they just don't even have time to get there. Right. Yeah. Are we out of time?
1: (laughs) (laughs) When you stood up, I kind of got the hint. I got to tell you. Well, at this point in the program. My script helps me to say that I'm Andrea Wood, I'm publisher of the Business Journal, and tonight we are at Stanbaugh Auditorium in the Christman Memorial Hall, listening to Closing the Gap, Building Opportunity in the Mahoning Valley. This event features Maureen Conway, Vice President for Policy Program and Executive Director of Economic Opportunities Program of the Aspen Institute, Dennis Robinson, Mission Services Director, Youngstown Area Goodwill, and T. Sharon Woodbury, Director of Community Planning and Economic Development, City of Youngstown. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone: City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via our Facebook Live video. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at City Club MV. That's the tweet at City Club MV. Uh, And our staff will try to work it into the program. Holding the microphones today are our advisory committee members, and they will go around. So may we have the first question, please?
5: Hello. Uh, Actually, our first question is from Twitter, um, so I'll go ahead and read that. Maureen, thank you for your brief discussion on economic opportunity. For the regular person in our community... How does this translate to closing the wage gaps that we see here in the Mahoning Valley?
2: Uh, thank you that's a, <laughs> I thought that's a, that's a hard question um, but one of the things so I, I think that um, I think that the point that I was trying to make is that um, is that closing the wage gap is you know if we think about well, first we should define what the wage gap is, right? So I defined it as having a wage that you can support yourself on what you earn at, at work and how many jobs have that, right? So if you want to start to, to narrow that gap, there's, there's two ways to basically think about it. What, do you, what can you do to, to raise wages writ large or what can you do to lower the cost of living, right? So. Um, And I think there's ways that you can think about sort of public-private partnerships to address both sides of those questions, right? So how do you engage the business community in sort of looking at the situation of of work and working people and to think about, you know, are there ways they, they could redesign work so that work is more productive and they can reward work more. At the same time, can you work with sort of, you know, public-private partnerships to address the, the high cost of certain things that people are struggling with, if they're struggling with the high cost of housing or transportation or healthcare or childcare? So how do you think about can you reduce those costs for people so that then you don't have to put so much on the wage? And I think to really start to address that in any community, you really have to start looking at, well, what are the assets we have to address the, this situation for working families? What are the assets we have in terms of the service side, as well as you know, what are the, the tables that we have to engage our business community around thinking strategically on this issue? And so that's where I would start.
6: Yes, uh, for the future, um, provided we get our immigration issues sorted out, which I'm sure we will eventually. Uh, do you, are you considering plans to attract more immigrants out here? Because they are, have proven to be fantastic entrepreneurs, and it's been proven in Cleveland that for every $1 of public funds invested in refugees, they return it 10 times over.
5: Who are you addressing the question?
6: Everyone. <laughs>
1: Well, I don't know that that's um, my area of specialty. Sharon, how about you? (laughs) I I,
3: I would not claim to be a specialist by any stretch. Um, I I do know that there's been some success um, in Akron, but it's a much larger um, issue with immigration and um, how that's going to be um, handled in terms of of managing it in, in some way. Um, but certainly I think there's opportunity there um, when you're talking about um, trying to um, diversify a workforce, bringing additional um, um, people in, and um, uh, they're bringing in additional skills and just a, a desire to work. I, I don't um, see that as uh, anything that we should avoid, um, but just something that needs to be studied a little bit more.
1: You bring up something that I don't think has really come up much in local political discussion, and it's a good point. And we've got Mayor Franklin here from the city of Warren, and now you have your marching orders. Let's think about... (laughs) No, seriously, let's think about immigration and refugees, because that is true, very true.
5: Um, Given all the work that Goodwill is doing, what kind of accommodations have... um, the companies that employ these workers made um, since they're not used to like the traditional workforce? For example, um, like transportation issues or um, just things that they're not typically used to.
4: Well, we all know that transportation is probably one of the largest uh, barriers that uh, employees are faced with. Um, so it, it's that, that, that particular one we, we, we're working on Uh, trying to get that piece figured out. But again, um, some of the things that that I I talked about a little bit earlier and that I will uh, repeat is uh, walking with those individuals to tear down the other barriers. So uh, take for example, well let's talk about uh, a gentleman that was in our first cohort. Uh, He had issues and problems with transportation. Uh, so he was able to get the job. Uh, he was able to, to to do very well. Actually, finished top in the class, but didn't have a car. So he was going to work and was late every day at the same time. Uh, so it was it was our responsibility as those community partners to figure that piece out. So because we followed those individuals uh, through job coaching two years uh, past the day of employment, uh, we were able to find out that. Number one, this young man did not have uh, transportation uh, of his own, and he was using public transportation, but it only could bring him to a certain place, and then he ran uh, to, uh, and and this just kind of goes to show what the chance that he got what he was willing to do. He was willing to get up 5 o'clock to catch a bus that still made him late but we were able to work with the the with the company and say, hey, is there something we can do here? Is there something that we can do to knock down those barriers? So they were able to allow him to start later. Uh, so he was able to retain his job and he's doing very well now and got a car. <laughs> he finally got a car. So he was able, able to do that. But these are the types of things that are going to become very crucial and very important is communicating uh, inside of that sector, being able to to, to kind of uh, 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 put away our, our titles and to put away our, our, our money and start to talk about what is needed for that worker to be successful. And I believe that the return on investment would be greater than anything that we could ever imagine. Excellent. You know, I just wanted to add one point
3: to that. I think it's important to also look at some of the reasons why. Um, transportation is an issue. Is it a car or is it the driver's license? Did they, you know, mm-hmm. that they lost it for some reason in circumstances that led to them not being able to drive? I, I'm fairly certain that there was um, recently a program where they were um, kind of designing an amnesty program for those who had some um, fees that had racked up and in, in trying to uh, make the licenses um, um, accessible and, and that individuals could gain those back, but uh, that's when you're, you have to involve um, multiple levels of government and agency to work together because it's it's um, it's all um, a, a, a problem that stretches among a lot of causes.
2: Yeah. And I just want to add something to what Dennis was bringing up in terms of the importance of the communication about why, right? Because another issue that we we've seen in a number of communities and. I, I'm wondering if you've seen here is the issue of benefit clips of people who um, maybe have eligibility yes. for childcare or other kind of supports, but if they earn too much money, if they take a, a promotion, they're going to lose their benefits and it's worth far more than the promotion is worth. And sometimes companies don't understand why somebody's saying no or somebody's walking away from what they see as an opportunity, and having some communication around that and trying to work collaboratively to address that problem. I think is is really important. So that communication is key.
3: Hi. Maureen, you talked about the various tables that employers engage at, and I'd love to hear from Dennis or Sharon uh, a little bit more about how the Mahoning Valley Manufacturing Coalition has come together and really helped to advance some of the work, because I think that's a really important table locally, uh, and I believe they've been connected to some of the effort here. I couldn't understand.
4: I, I couldn't hear what she said.
3: I, I was, Maureen referenced the employer tables, the various ways businesses can engage, and I'd like to hear a little bit more from Sharon and Dennis about how specifically the Mahoning Valley Manufacturing Coalition has helped to advance these conversations locally. Uh, they've been connected to some of the, the work that Dennis was talking about, and I think that's a unique, important role uh,
5: to just share.
3: Uh, so I um, have had conversations um, with Jessica, who I believe is in, in the room, um, and, and she's um, the uh, managing person for um, Mahoning Valley Manufacturers Coalition. Um, I think that the, the principle of what we're discussing today has um, been embraced, um, and that's how um, they got their first company that's involved. But. Um, there's some, you know, some resources that need to um, be put into place to assist with that uh, and having companies um, um, be willing to put that forth. I'm not sure what type of progress they're making with that, but um, they have kind of been leading this, the space and trying to accomplish some of these unique ways that we're talking about, um, the, the models of, of trying to
1: attract a new workforce. Um, can, can Jessica respond? Jessica? Jessica? Because I think, that, I think that the Mahoning Valley Manufacturers Coalition and Industry Needs You and the organizations that are working around uh, various skill certificates, they've done tremendous work in this community, and they are a model. Well,
6: thank you for that, um, and thank you for the question. Um, we've had the great fortune to work with our partners Um, locally, Goodwill, MyCap, Eastern Gateway, Aspire, uh, MCTA, to pool together the program um, that uh, has been mentioned here tonight And um, we also have had the great fortune to have a great leader and champion in Nordson Corporation to kind of lead the way and help us to really, you know, fine tune the model. Um, But we've been introducing this to other manufacturers throughout the community. And so I actually will take the opportunity to respond but also ask a question um, if you don't mind. Um, And that is, you know, as we're talking with other community leaders about how to take this promising practice that have, I mean, there's so many success stories, it just touches my heart, and it's meeting the demand of an employer who is expanding within our valley, and we want, that's exactly what we want to see, right, is connecting those great economic opportunities with individuals who could benefit the most from them. Um, But there's this gap, there's this bridge, and so the work advance model has really helped us to to bridge that gap, to give them that bridge from low income, um, part-time, non-family sustaining jobs to ones that have a a more robust career pathway that can lead them to stronger earning potential. So, but my question is actually for Maureen, I know that you've done quite a bit of work in um, building capacity, capacity building in communities to support work like this, and I, I think that's exactly what we need to do here in this community to take it to scale, um, to take partners like Dennis and Marilyn and multiply them and, and create you know a, an army that can help us really advance this work. And so I'm wondering what lessons you've learned over time and with your research and your practice that we might be able to apply here locally as we think about how do we scale this great promising practice into something more sustainable?
2: Yeah, great. Well, thank you, thank you for the question. And I guess there's... There's two things. Um, One is, uh, you know, when I was talking about the the manufacturing extension partnership example in Chicago, I neglected to say how they partnered with so many other organizations on workforce development and job training and to to help provide supports and things like that. So um, I think building partnerships across organizations is key. Um, You know, uh, Goodwill's a great organization, and we work with them in many places. but you know every organization sort of has limited capacity in some sense, so one of the ways you can sort of maximize and expand capacity is by building greater awareness among organizations about each other's strengths so that they can work better together and sort of leverage each other's resources and, and try to do, do more so that's I think one thing that, that's really, um, that's really important. Um, the other thing I think you know in terms of this scale question because um, I've actually been asked the scale question sort of really a lot of a lot of times, <laughs> um, and uh, and and you know I've been working with sort of sector strategies that I think can sort of demonstrate success in with a with a small number of people. But one of the real problems of them scaling, I mean, there's basically two problems that they have. So one is it's expensive, right? I mean, because there's an opportunity cost for people to not work and to spend time learning, right? Mm-hmm. And somehow that for people who don't have very much income or wealth, that gap has to be covered somehow. So it's not just the training and maybe we could put it online and make it cheaper because it's also like keeping your life together and it's also the, the work of social connections and, and industry connections. Um, so, so investing in these strategies fully, I think has just proven to be a real challenge. We have you know sort of limited public investment, Um, you know, philanthropy is insufficient to sort of pick it all up and, 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 you know, businesses sometimes invest. So, so figuring out what's the investment strategy I think is, is, um, is a, is an important part if you want to sort of grow the, the size of these programs. But then the other piece, of course, goes back to some of those slides that I was saying. You know, you really do need to also grow the number of high quality jobs that you want to be connecting people to, right? And so you need to be thinking about how are we, starting to influence the structure of our labor market so that we have more high-quality jobs that are supporting people in the way that we want people to live in our community. Um, so I think you, you kind of need to tackle both of those, those issues, but I think you really can make progress by building more awareness and partnerships among the organizations in your community.
1: Thank you all for attending tonight's forum.
2: And we have some closing remarks.
5: As Andrew Wood said, thank you all for attending tonight's forum. My name is Christiana Savo, and I was fortunate enough to intern at the City Club of the Mahoning Valley this summer, and although my time is ending here next week, uh, this is not the last time you'll see my face, I can promise you that. <laughs> With that, tonight at the City Club, we're at Stamba Auditorium, Christman Memorial Hall, listening to the Closing the Gap, Building Opportunity in the Valley Forum, featuring Maureen Conway, Vice President for Policy Programs and Executive Director of Economic Opportunities Program, the Aspen Institute, Dennis Robinson, Senior, Mission Service Director at the Youngstown Area Goodwill Industries, and T. Sharon Woodbury, Director of Community Planning and Economic Development for the City of Youngstown. Our moderator is Publisher of the Business Journal, Ms. Andrea Wood. The City Club of the Mahoning Valley is presented by Bank of America, the Nordson Corporation Foundation, the Raymond John Ween Foundation, the Youngstown Foundation, and the Arnett Family Fund, a component of the Community Foundation of the Mahoning Valley. Additional support is provided by Youngstown State University and WYSU. We're delighted to have many of our sponsors here tonight. We appreciate your generous support of City Club programming. Additionally, we welcome guests at tables hosted by Thomas P. Miller and Associates, the Business Journal, and the Youngstown Public Library. We thank you all for being here tonight. As a reminder, tonight's forum will re-air on 88.5 FM WYSU on Thursday, August 8th at 6 PM. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Ms. Conway, Mr. Robinson, and Ms. Woodbury. Ms. Wood for moderating. Thank you members and friends of the City Club. This forum is now adjourned.